The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. A lot of times when we see like abortion, we see these, um, these elements of human sacrifice that are just so easy and so obvious to us as Christians. And we're like, why doesn't the culture just get it? Are they that evil? I mean, these are babies. How could, how could this be happening? How could this be occurring? And we don't understand that there is a blindness that is over the church and a curse that is over the whole land as a result of that. And the culture simply cannot see the most low-hanging fruit that we can see because the church doesn't see all the other low-hanging fruit in all these other areas of human sacrifice that the culture knows is there. Police, immigration, all these other areas of, of the sacrifice of the one to the collective where the church is actively partaking in it, but then just calling out this one place of human sacrifice, abortion. And so... It's been on my heart to take, for those of us that have this illumination in the time of darkness, the Deuteronomy 28, 28 curse that says madness, blindness, and confusion of heart takes place when this, this curse is in effect. For those of us that have the eyes open, why can't we go to the culture like Paul did in Acts 17 and connect with the culture at the place where they're crying out for justice and show them that their cries for justice don't align with their worldview, that it just won't be satisfied, that the left can scream all they want about fairness for immigrants, but their very system demands that immigrants are sacrificed to the state, just like the right does. If you look at the work of Bojanar Marinov, he makes that very plain and very clear. So how do we get this message into the culture? I mean, abortion is one of those kind of, kind of those points that might be better presented last, if we went to that Areopagus and we looked at that unknown God and we said, hey, check this out. This idol, this idol that y'all are worshiping by accident right here, let me tell you a little bit about that. Immigration is one of those areas where we can provide those solutions. It's also one of those reasons why it's so important to have a full or biblical worldview when you're fighting evil. You can't fight it in a vacuum. They don't want to listen to the guy that's the religious bigot talk on abortion. They want to listen to the guy that's full orb taking the axe to the root in every single area of life. So one of the things that, that I've personally been convicted about doing is taking some of these other areas and leading with them. And uh, on that note, a these speakers that we have today, every, we, we, don't, we don't need an introduction for who they are. I mean, they're awesome, but they're our brothers. They're not like our, you know, rabbi, teacher. You know, they're, they're, just, they're just Joel and Bo. But... For some strange reason, God, at this point in time in history, put illumination on these men. These special men have been set apart during a time of darkness to recover that lost book of the law. And it's like, when you see like 
just these long areas of history from our perspective, and then you see light breaking in like 500 years ago with the Reformation. You know, we are at today a new Reformation, a time where we're breaking away from collectivism, institutionalism, clergy laity divides, things like that. And we're moving into a faith for all of life. And this faith that applies not just to not just to believers, but to unbelievers. This is the basic essence of reality. Progress. If we're going to look at progress without the God that created matter, energy, space, and time and raised Jesus from the grave, why wouldn't that God have, have the, the custody over all elements of progress? Why wouldn't he? Why, is, why would the faith be in a box somewhere? Right? Why would it be something that only can be entrusted to somebody with a microphone on top of a stage or something like that? Our brother Joel here is going to give us a um, give us a talk on the biblical basis for progress, and there is no other basis for progress except for the Word of God, the God who stretched out the heavens. And this brother right here has, the, if I can say anything about Joel, it's this, and the same thing applies to Bo. This is a man who could be making a ton of money using his scholarship. If he was to compromise, if he was to just check a few boxes here and there, not say a few things, kind of custom tailor his message in a certain way, the American church system would be feeding this guy millions with the kind of books that he can write, his style, his swag on the stage, the whole nine yards. He has the whole package, but he will not bend. He will stay on that ethical judicial line. He is an Athanasius in this hour where, where, uh, where everybody else in the religious clubs are going to say, hey, look, here's the carrot. But if you talk about slavery in this way, if you put it on the doorstep of the church, you're going to lose a whole bunch of money. And Joel's going to say, well, you know what? At the end of the day, here I stand. I can do no other. And he's going to hit those tough issues. And he's going to challenge all of us. And and and. When you see somebody that could be, that could have, you know, that could have it all, but says, you know what? I don't care about the treasures and the riches of this world if it's going to cost me anything when it comes to the riches of the kingdom of God. I just don't care about it. When you see that, that is the man bringing you this message today on the biblical basis for progress. So don't make it another conference talk where we don't really pay attention or something like that. Let's join in fellowship with our brother Joel McDermott up here and all commit to make that same sacrifice as we're listening and putting this into action. My friend Joel, come on, man. How was it you said that I could make those millions? <laughs> Write that down for me, if you will. I want to know the boxes to check. All day, all day. The only problem with an introduction like that, can y'all hear me just fine if I stand here like this, or do I need to get the mic closer? Just fine. Just fine? Good. The only problem with an introduction like that is you kind of have to try to live up to it. And uh, not always easy to do, but I'm, I'm always embarrassed when I get introduced that well. Uh, it's more than I, far more than I deserve, and most of the accomplishments I have in life have, have been the prod, product of help from great many people, and not just me. And before I start, I just want to say thanks to Jason for having this. I, 
On the way over here, we drove through Shreveport, and apparently they had seven to ten tornadoes the other night. Touchdown, we saw some of the debris along the sides of the highways and stuff. And I've put on a few of these kind of shindigs myself, and I know the debris afterwards is sometimes much like those tornadoes. So a big thanks to you guys putting us up in the Airbnb and all that stuff and for last night and for all this. It's a tremendous blessing and gift to be able to get together with like-minded people. I've got a lot of scripture here on the first couple of pages. I just want to read a little bit from the book of Jude, which may seem a little odd and out of place, but maybe we'll get to why in a little bit. Jude is writing to the church, and he says in his little short epistle, I would like to write to you about our common faith. I want to talk to you about the faith and the doctrine. He says, but I can't because I have to write to you in a warning against certain men who have crept into the church unaware their false prophets, etc., etc. And here's how he talks about those men. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Skipping down just a little bit. Uh, but these, they speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. So keep in mind what he's saying here is that these guys are speaking evil of the faith and the way God's people were doing things, speaking evil, running it down, blaspheming it, and instead, speaking very confidently of the things they thought they knew, but Jude is saying those things came from their natural instincts. We'll kind of explain that as we go. Woe unto them, Jude says, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, perished in the gainsaying of Cori. And he goes on and talks about those types of things. Uh, further, uh, these be they, he says in verse 19, who separate themselves sensual, not having the spirit. So there's this contrast going on in the book of Jude about these false prophets who have crept in. They look like us, they talk like us, but what they're doing is blasphemy. They're overthrowing the way of God and they're walking without the spirit. And this phrase has stuck in my mind for many years now, in the way of Cain. Why does Jude go out of his way to emphasize the way of Cain? Made me want to study a little bit about Cain to figure out what he's talking about. And if, if you've not read the book by Jacques Ellul, The Meaning of the City, I would recommend all of you read it. I think Bo's recommended it on his podcast. It was after reading that book that everything clicked for me on what the way of Cain really is. And then I read Brent Winter's book on the excellence of the common law, and it's a more detailed history of the same thing. 
on the legal systems and they all dovetailed and now I'm one of the most enlightened people in the world on the, on the way of Cain. Now I mean that tongue in cheek of course. It is fundamentally life changing to see how simple it is and yet how profound it is to get what Jude is talking about here. And it bears on our subject today. Now I said I was going to talk on the biblical case for progress. And as I was thinking about that, after the title was already said, I realized that that's not really a good way to talk about that because every worldview makes a case for progress. Progress is an inescapable concept. And that sounds strange to us because we're used to thinking in terms of, well, the Bible has a particular view of history, and a lot of the pagan religions out there deny that view of history. But I want to, I want to challenge you on that today to realize everybody's working from some paradigm of progress in their mind, either explicitly or implicitly in their worldview. Now, perhaps you could take the most radical example, say a Hindu version, Hindu views of Maya, or that all of human experience is an illusion, that what really exists is in some spiritual realm we can't access through our senses, and all of this is an illusion, so that any progress you see taking place in history is really just an illusion. In fact, time itself is an illusion, and therefore there can't be any progress. So all building that you see, all wealth compilation that you see, all compound growth in history, all of it's illusory. The truly spiritually enlightened person will shun all of those things because they're an illusion. Or at worst, even worse than that, they're a trap. They're a trap to distract you from what real spiritual life is all about. And the problem with that view is it, it, it doesn't take its own presuppositions far enough. If, for example, you eschew all of these things such as wealth and, and whatnot and building and progress in society because you believe this life of asceticism is going to get you closer to spirituality, you're ignoring the fact that your worldview says it's all an illusion. So why choose asceticism? Poverty is an illusion too. That was an angelic amen, I'm going to say. <laughs> Poverty is an illusion in that worldview. So no matter what you deny and what cave you go live in or what you do to get rid of the uh, alleged lusts and, and, and materialism in your life, you're still stuck with an illusion. And if you really want to push that even further, you can say, well, okay, I just won't go to either extreme. I'll just live in a simple average middle class lifestyle. And you'll have to admit that's an illusion too. There's no way you can get away from any aspect of your life in any way, shape, or form from being an illusion. If all of human experience is illusory, then all of it is. And of course, we know this is complete nonsense among the people who hold this view today uh, because virtually every Eastern mystic, in the United States anyway, starting in about Colorado, moving all the way to the western parts of the country in California, and there's a small patch uh, where Joe lives in Asheville, North Carolina. In every one of their yoga studios are incorporated as businesses and they have bank accounts and they charge money. Okay, so there's, there's no living by illusion in here. There's no denying the illusion here. There's, there's grasping on to the illusion and living with it. I mean, you, you, may, be, you may teach people that 
Uh, well, I should put it this way. You can't contort your way out of the illusion by practicing yoga, but you can certainly charge people for the privilege of trying. <laughs> so many of these people, not all of them certainly, but many of them are just as materialistic as anyone else, just in their own way. Now, all joking aside, even in the view that time and material reality themselves are illusory, even somebody who holds that as as extreme as they can and consistently as they can and want to transcend all of this to get to whatever the Hindu or Zen Buddhist or whatever uh, a nirvana may be. Even that person is admitting implicitly that there is a logical progress to be made to get out of this mess. I mean, at the very least, the concept of escapism is a doctrine of progress. I gotta get out of here. I gotta start here at point A and I gotta get there at point B. Boom, you just stole from my worldview. So whatever rituals you have to do or asceticism or whatever you have to do and perform is actually an act performed in history which is a doctrine of progress. They're trying to do something to get up to a different, better place. Now, it's common in Christian worldview studies, as I said, to make the observation that Christianity has a linear view of history as opposed to a cyclical view of history that's prominent in most pagan uh, systems. Uh, Joe told me to be sure to point out that people who say, the, quote the statement, not Joe Salant, the other Joe, Joe Foreman. The real said, Joe. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that debate for a different time that uh, people who say those who forget the events of the past are doomed to repeat them. Well, okay, there's an element of cyclical history in that too. And, and we should be careful what we're saying thoughtlessly. I, I agree with that. Uh, and the Bible does present us with this very clear, linear view of history. There is a beginning, a creation. There is an end goal. And keep that word as a, as a key word for yourself. A goal, not just an end but a goal, and there's a progress in the, in the middle of that we call history that progresses from the one to the other. There's no repeating ourselves endlessly, although even in biblical thought there are cycles. Uh, if you obey the Lord, uh, he blesses you, you look at the history of Israel, and they're constantly going through this up and down roller coaster throughout history. So maybe um, some of those concepts need to be a little more nuanced as we go on. But when the Bible speaks of the end of something, for example, the end of the age, the end of all things is at hand, 1 Peter 4, 7, I believe, the end of the law, Christ is the end of the law, etc. It uses the Greek word telos, which is not speaking merely of a termination point in time. Well, it arrived, and now it's over. And now we can all go do what we want to do. No, it's talking about a purpose. The study of teleology is the study of God building purpose into the universe. And reaching the end of something in Scripture is reaching the fulfillment of that purpose so that it is an organic growth metaphor, if you will. That's where what Ephesians 4 tells us, right? Paul wants us to have the gifts of the church so that we can all grow up into the full stature of the measure of Christ. That is the same doctrine of history. It is a doctrine not just of reaching a certain point in time and then it's over. It's a doctrine of growth and of reaching a goal. Now, what is that, that, that uh, measure of the fullness of Christ, by the way? 
it is, we'll get to this a little more in a second, it's the new law that Christ gave us. You remember in the Upper Room Discourse, he says, I'm not going to give you any new law except this one. And a lot of heads have been scratched over that, including my own. What is, why is this law new? He told us to love one another, right? No, he specifically tells them to love one another as I have loved you. And how did he love us? He loved us in the particular way that he was the lamb that was slain on the altar. He loved himself in such a way that greater love has no man that he laid down his life for his friends. That's what we're called to do that was not so apparent in the Old Testament, although it was acted out for us on the altar uh, all the time. But Christ gives it to us explicitly in simple words. Die for one another. Be willing to give yourselves for one another. And that's the transformative ethic that really puts the purpose into the linear history of God's uh, uh, view of progress. And this is presupposed at a very fundamental level by every worldview. You cannot escape this doctrine of progress. Even pagan cyclical views of time and history, there's not a pure circle repeating itself. You're not stuck in some infinite loop where you do the same things over and over. And it's observable in a thousand ways. Just look at technology as the most obvious one. We don't drive chariots like they did in the first century. We've got a host of better technological advances and promises of very much more. Uh, and granted, we use those advances many times in the dark side of our nature for destruction and exploitation and death. Uh, nevertheless, it's there. The promise of much better is there and much good is, is there also. Secularists have been picking up on this, by the way. There's a, several, a handful of books out there on Things are much better now than they ever have been. So let's let's quit bickering and complaining and get on with being thankful. Some of these are written by Christians. Some of them are just secularists who picked up on the fact, you know, things aren't so bad. Uh, but at least we could say we don't live like they did in the 19th century even, in which the streets of any major city would have been so strewn with horse manure it would have been virtually a, a sewer, and it had to be hauled out daily by the thousands of tons. This is not an exaggeration. Chicago, New York, these places had to be shoveled daily to get the horse manure out of the streets, and they hoped they could get it done before the first substantial rain. <laughs> and they had many problems, and of course disease spread, and of course we have these quaint ideas of the 19th century of women walking around with their big flowing dresses and whatnot. Just imagine walking across the street and entering the next building with the fringes of your dress uh, adorned with that substance. <laughs> Even Cambridge University, the heights of so-called Western civilization, in the 15th century, uh, contemporary observers like Erasmus and others that visited there, their accounts talk about it being infested with lice and rats. You think the frat houses are bad now. <laughs> think 15th century Cambridge University. And the alleyways between buildings in London were open sewers. You didn't go just walk down the alley. It wasn't an option unless you were very, very dirt poor or very shady. And you hoped you didn't have your head out your window and the person two floors above you decided to empty their chamber pots in the alleyway. So these are things we don't even, they don't even come on our radar today. And yet it's absolute filth that people lived in and considered normal at the time. So yeah, I, I would say 
even the pagan who has a cyclical view of history has to. They're forced to recognize that there's been some progress in history. Not just progress in some spiritual sense, but real progress taking place in history. So that person is forced to say, technology, writing and communication, inventions of thousands of kinds, philosophy, the development of creeds, electricity, refrigeration, insulation, clothing, transportation, in a million other ways, there has been progress so that even a cyclical view of history is not so much a circle as it is kind of a spiral going forward. We may repeat certain things. In fact, we certainly will. The rise and fall of civilizations, so-called warfare, political folly, religious charlatanry, and many others. But we still do in a way that incorporates things we've learned from the past and built on it. Someone said we stand on the shoulders of giants. And that's certainly true. Even if we take the most pessimistic, cyclical view possible, we still have to say that we make our mistakes over and over again on the shoulders of giant mistakes. Even if we think all we're doing in history is digging a deeper trench, friends, that is a doctrine of progress. And that means by the very definition, by the very admission of it, that there's a hope for something better. At the very least, a hope. And in Christianity, we see, in many ways, a very real hope of doing that. So, so my contention is that all worldviews make a case for progress. The question is not progress or no progress, as we've heard this version of this in presuppositional circles uh, many times. The question is, whose progress? What is progress? What do you consider progress? What counts for progress? What, is the, what are the ethics of progress? How do we recognize progress as opposed to fake progress or something that purports to be but isn't? What is the standard? What is the nature of progress in history? And those are the questions we really need to grapple with. And of course, I follow the five-point covenant model developed by Ray Sutton and popularized by Dr. North in a dozen of his books. Uh, and, and I would walk through those questions, and I'll do that briefly in a second. But how can we have, how can we, how can we, be, ha how can we be certain that we have progress in history and that it is progress? If, we're, if it's left to nature, you may have progress, but it may be that digging of that hole. It may be that cyclical spiral forward in which the weak continually get eaten by the strong or devoured. Unless you have a benevolent force guiding the whole thing, guaranteeing the outcome is higher up that mountain than when you started, you can't have a real doctrine of progress. You can make, you have progress, you have direction, uh, put it in terms of physics, you have a vector, you have a direction and a magnitude. The question is, is it going in the right direction we want? Uh, so the first thing you have to have is a sovereign who's guiding the whole thing. The second you have to have is somebody who legitimately represents that sovereign in history. Who is that? Well, that's a huge question that everyone in these circles, have, I mean our immediate circles, has struggled with. Because is it the quote-unquote church? 
And I think everyone here probably has been burned deeply by the quote-unquote church in some way, shape, or form. That opens tremendous questions. Is that the church really a church or not? How do you lose legitimacy in history when you've named the name of Christ? And I choose always to fall back on the doctrine of the invisible church. Okay, you, you, I don't care if you kick me out of your visible church or not. That I can deal with. The one thing I do know is that I have named the name of Christ, and he knows my name, and I call for him. That's what he said are the marks of his sheep. It is, it is your faith in Christ and the fellowship of the saints that really defines that more than anything. That, I don't want to go too far off on that tangent. But that's how we can discern where is the legitimate representative of that sovereign and that progress in history. Okay, If you love the Lord, it is you. Don't need to ask any more questions. Don't need to get into questions of high church ecclesiology. Is the PCA still a church or is the Southern Baptist Church still a church or whatever? That, leave that to God. I mean, if you really believe in the doctrine of the invisible church, let it be invisible. All right, leave it to God. And treat those people that treat you like brothers and sisters like brothers and sisters. And, and deal with the rest of them with love like you would anybody else. But in the process, the one thing I do know is that if you love the Lord and you're part of the body of Christ, you are part of that legitimate representation in history. You may not have the institutional churches on board with you as you go forward in your doctrine of progress. But you do it anyway, knowing that the Lord honors it, and your circle of saints that you're in fellowship with honors that. So that's a difficult thing. It's a bigger subject. It's not what I talks about. But at this point, two of the covenant is representation, so it needs to be grappled with. The third point, of course, is ethics. And for those of you, anybody here doesn't know the five-point covenant model? Anybody? Oh, good, good. I'm among people who know. If, if you're listening online or read, hear this later, Look up the five-point covenant model, Ray Sutton, Gary North, and you'll get the acronym THEOS, and all these points will make a little more sense to you. Point three is ethics. You've got to have a law. We all know that's God's law. That's why you know, there are linear versions of progress in history on the secular side. The doctrine of evolution by natural selection is a doctrine of linear history progress. They may not have an end. They may not have a beginning. Uh, it may fit into a larger theory that is cyclical because it's the heat death of the universe expanding and contracting over billions of years, whatever. Uh, but that doctrine of evolution is linear in, in its context. Uh, nevertheless, what, it's is, what is its law? The law of nature. It is eat or be eaten. And, and really, it's, eat, it's, it's actually not eat or be eaten. It's reproduced before you get eaten. That's what it is. And whoever's, whoever lives long enough to reproduce and pass their genes on to the next generation, um, that, that person is the, the winner in history. Uh, by the way, there are other pseudo-secularist views that are Unitarian, so, so to speak. There are very similar parallels between secular views of linear history and evolution and Islamic views. Uh, but that's for another time. Um, fourth point of the covenant is sanctions. Whose sanctions? God's sanctions. Well, if you don't have God's sanctions, you're going to be doomed to living through the sanctions of some, some man, or usually that devolves into an institution of men. The family, the church, the state, in some way, shape, or form. In ancient times, the family's not that powerful anymore, but in ancient times it was. Today it's the state. The state gets to decide what the sanctions are. If you don't follow its drug laws, you end up in prison. Well, we know that, that from God's perspective, that entire system is a scam. It's a sham. 
The drug laws are ridiculous. The, the legal system enforcing it is ridiculous. And uh, the prison system is ridiculous. Uh, I'll hit on that a little bit more in a second. And then the fifth point of the covenant is, is succession in history. Who inherits this? Because you're not eternal. You're going to, just like me, you're going to die someday. And it's going to be left to somebody. Who's going to be left to? It's going to be left to the people who are faithful in carrying out God's law. Uh, that may be in the institutional church. It may not be. So those are all things to think about. And it made me think a lot about, and by the way, this is probably going to go way over time, so beat me later. So Keep it rolling. Um, my wife will probably affirm that I need a beating, so just beat me later. It made me think a lot about what's happened in the news recently and talks about Western civilization. And it, it made me think, and one of Bojadar's posts made me think, what in the world is Western civilization? I used to have a set of Britannica's great books. You know, any, any of y'all have that? 52 volumes of the great books of Western civilization. Starts with Aristotle and Plato, and there's Tacitus in there, and it goes up the whole whole line. You've got all the great philosophers and Pascal. Thank God Pascal made, made it in. He's about the only decent one in there. And Aquinas and all these other, a whole rack of books. And th these are the great books of Western civilization. And, and I've spent a little time in Europe and different places and you see these great buildings and monuments everywhere of Western civilization. I'm like, what is this? Well, I read the Bible and I, I see hardly a reflection of any of what the Bible teaches in any of these things. Certainly not in Plato and Aristotle and all that stuff. So what is Western civilization? It, and, and then a couple weeks ago or last week or whatever, uh, Notre Dame catches on fire. And suddenly the whole world, most of which despises Western civilization, is talking about the greatness of Western civilization. Oh, we must preserve this heritage of Western civilization. Uh, it just blew my mind to hear all these liberals talking about preserving heritage. What are you talking about? You don't believe in that stuff. So, was Westminster, and several Christians in our own circles, this was a great symbol of Western civilization. I'm like, what is Western civilization? And in my own studies of it, I've come to the view that none of those buildings or monuments really are part of it. They're, they're more a legacy of the Roman civil world than they are of the biblical history and teachings of what progress is in history. Where I see those things is where the Hebrew Republic was replicated or tried to be replicated. So a lot of it in the Dutch world in the 17th century, a lot of it in the English Puritans in the 17th century, certainly some of it in Geneva and, and the Reformation. But um, that, that's the places I see it. Let me get a little bit back to more of my script here before I get ahead of myself. When this hit the news about Notre Dame and all the talk was about Western civilization, other people were quick to point out uh, many people in the Reformed world about the Roman Catholic history of the persecution of saints, the, the burning of heretics right out in front of Notre Dame Cathedral, the uh, including scores of Protestants during the Counter-Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries. And that's what I asked. I said, okay, how is this civilization? That is more part and parcel of the Roman system of ethics than the building is than all the glories of the stained glass windows and whatever else. It's the judicial ethical system underlying it. And out of that comes all of the tragedies of the Western world. The, the slave system. The patriarchal systems which were inherited directly from Rome. 
and the systems of primogeniture, and the, which is a disinheritance of your own children. The the uh, more than any one single thing, the inquisitorial law system. You hear about the Inquisition, you think, oh, this ancient medieval thing. They would round up people, and they would they 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 were accused. They were guilty until they proved themselves innocent by taking a series of oaths. There was a system of law that developed called compurgation. You purged yourself of guilt by taking oaths. So someone would accuse you, usually a, an official from the Dominican order who was heading up the local branch of the Inquisition. This guy is a Protestant or whatever. This person is a witch. And I'm trying not to look at anybody particularly when I say that, so I won't get accused later. Wouldn't be the first time. Good beer. He's a witch. Yeah. And, and, and that person was guilty before the church until they could prove their innocence and they would have to swear. And, and then against that could be brought in other witnesses against them who also would swear. And it was like a swearing contest. Well, this person swore 12 times. You need 12 witnesses to swear for you to be innocent. And so they could just kill people that they wanted to kill under the system. And they could take their property, and they did. If, if any heretic was burned, they confiscated their house. They'd throw their wife and children out in the streets. They'd take their house, give it to the church. And that was the system. And, okay, so we know all about the Inquisition. It was evil. That's a medieval thing. No, it wasn't. That exact same legal system was what founded the Star Chamber during the English Puritan era. The government used it. The king adopted a secular version of it and used it against everyone who would not swear loyalty to him. When we came over to the, and founded this nation, for the most part, the earliest of our founding fathers did so explicitly contrary to that, saying we will not have that Roman legal system here. It's in the Declaration of Independence. If you read those list of grievances, way down in there, and I talk about this all the time, is one grievance where it says the king has attempted to install a jurisdiction foreign to us in our lands a system of courts that is not the traditional English court system in a neighboring province so that it could be used as a, pretense, as a pretense to impose it on us too. Okay, That's in the Declaration of Independence. What in the world is he talking about? He was talking about the Quebec Act where the Catholic Church had gained enough power to impose the inquisitional system of courts and the king allowed it and, and, and Jefferson and those guys saw it and said, this is not English common law. This is exactly contrary to it. Here's a system in which you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. Here's a system where you don't have to have witnesses testify to what they saw. Here's a system where they can put you in jail and leave you there until you swear to abide by the law. And there's a long string of things that come out of it. And friends, that system eventually worked its way into our system too through, the, through admiralty law. And I can go through the whole history of it. Don't want to bore you to death. But it is the foundation today of the drug war, of the modern police systems, of the prison system, of child protective services, of everything that we call today administrative law or law through the executive or yeah, through executive agencies. So in effect what it did was it allowed the king to turn himself into judge, jury, and executioner. And we do the same thing today with our executive branches. So that we can have this discussion on TV with with these sheriff's association or whatever and Donald Trump sitting there 
we want to confiscate guns from veterans who have PTSD. And Trump says, don't worry about the warrants. Just take the guns first and then worry about the warrants. That's that system of law in action. There's your executive saying, we will enforce this. Who cares about the consequences? Shoot first, ask questions later. And just do it. Now, when I look at Notre Dame Cathedral, forgive me, that's what I see. Because that is the ethical judicial system underneath it. And instead of that, what we had in, in many pockets in history and also at the founding of this nation and for a long time in many places, what was more like a Hebrew system of law, where all the things that we hold dear today as so-called scientific, or uh, not scientific, but constitutional rights and privileges, presumption of innocence, due process, the right to bear arms, the right to privacy, I mean, a legally protected right to privacy. You know that's in the Old Testament law? If, if, you owe, if somebody owed you money, you could pursue that person to get the money from them, but if they went inside their house, you had to stop. You could not follow them inside their house. That is the foundation of what we call the castle doctrine today, and it's being eroded by our own courts, piece by piece because of the drug war. Our Supreme Court has ruled that under certain circumstances, if the cops believe that guy's got drugs in his pocket when he flees into his door, then they could break the door down and go after him. They don't need a warrant. Okay, that's the first domino to fall. As H.L. Mencken said, the problem with, with the defending liberty is you find yourself half the time defending scoundrels. And, and in our case, we've got to defend the drug dealers and the drug guys on the streets because we hold these truths dear. Come on. The right and duty of private judgment. Many, many more. Those are the bases of progress. Anytime you've seen progress toward human liberty and flourishing in history, it's had these ideas behind it. And every time you see it, you see somebody spearheading the effort, willing to be thrown in jail, willing to be, to be beaten, willing to be shot and killed in order to either defend them and preserve them or to spearhead them into society where they don't even exist yet. The story of the English Revolution, one of the greatest uh, uh, figureheads, not the English Revolution, but the, the, the Puritan era, one of the greatest men of that era is, is John Lilburn. He was known as Freeborn John because he, he believed in his common law rights and he was willing to go to the mat over. And the, the church maintained a monopoly over licensing of printing. And so what did he do? He, he said, screw that. I'm going to print. And he started printing books. And he did it in, in a way calculated to get their attention, put the arrow right in the heart. He wrote books against Episcopal forms of government and printed them and published them. He may not have written them. He published them. And the, they put him in jail. And they said, if you want to testify, you have to swear the oath. Well, under their inquisitorial system, once you swore the oath, they could ask you anything. And he wasn't going to do that. And he fell back on the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, Christ said, swear not at all. Not above or below or to your head or anything else. So he wouldn't take the oath. And they left him languishing in prison. The king just threw him in prison and, and left there. Well, he would write tracts from prison and drop them out the prison windows. And people were taking them and printing them. He had the entire nation on his side. And when the Puritan uh, revolt happened under Cromwell and all that, and they took over London for a time, Cromwell let him out. He wasn't a Presbyterian. He was an independent. 
he, w he would have eventually been something of an enemy to those who hold the Westminster Confession, dear. Uh, but legally, historically, he's the very type of scoundrel you want on your side. He wasn't a scoundrel either. He was a Christian man. Uh, but here's a guy who had to stand up and take the lumps, take what came, and be that guy. This is not even in my notes, by the way. But everywhere we see those things happening, at the root of it is Hebrew law. It is the Old Testament law, or it's the Sermon on the Mount being put into action by a guy who doesn't care about the consequences. Who's willing to die. Look at the history that's in the Bible. Where do you see the greatest advances of human liberty made, which is what I would call progress? Where do you see those made? You see it at Sinai. You see it when Moses rose up and led this group of people out, defying the greatest power that existed at the time. What did they have? They had Notre Dame cathedrals all over the place. They built things that dwarfed all of our cathedrals. These pyramids, these massive monuments. They don't even know how to... I've been reading all this stuff recently. They don't even know how they built this stuff. The inner chambers of the pyramids have 70 ton concrete or granite blocks laid within with millimeter precision. They have no idea how they even transported the things, let alone how they lifted them 200 feet in the air and set them down. Nobody to this day knows how it was done. So this was the greatest power the world had probably ever seen up to that day. And you get a man who stands up and says, you know what? Yahweh said, let my people go. To the, to the head honcho of it. And he lets him go. So I'm trying to shorten this. But so, so, so they leave and they, they go out to Sinai. God gives them the Ten Commandments and I never tire, I never tire of saying this. What is the first words of the Ten Commandments. Here. Yeah. Huh? Here. Yeah. Oh, Israel. Uh, is that? All right. All right. You're throwing me off now. Stop it. <laughs> of the Ten Commandments in Exodus on Sinai, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. What is God saying? You were living in a slave system. You were living in an inquisitorial system. You were living in a top-down system of government. But now you shall have no other gods besides me, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. It's a constitution of liberty. Perhaps the first one in the history of the world. And what is the basis? What does Christ later teach us about the, the ethic that runs through all of those commandments? It is loving your neighbor and loving God. It is that new commandment he gave us to love each other as I have loved you, giving your life for your friend. That is the Ten Commandments. That's your constitution of liberty. And with that, you can stand up to tyrants. You can stand up to those monuments, and you can laugh at the monuments. Yeah, you, you know what, Pharaoh? That's a real nice stack of blocks you got there, buddy. However, my freedom is 100,000 times more valuable than that. And the other place you see that play out again in Scripture is in the book of Acts. There's no greater single episode of the expansion of human liberty probably in history until you get to the modern era. And what were they doing? The disciples were fighting against the powers that be that were entrenched and as, every bit as powerful as Pharaoh was in his day. It was the Roman Empire. It was the, the Sanhedrin backed by the power of Rome. And they stand up and they say, you know what? 
I know you told us not to say it again, but we're going to go say it again. And they not only go say it again, they walk right out to the middle of the temple and start saying it again. Preaching Christ. And they get thrown in prison. We know all the stories. That whole Then it spreads. It goes throughout all the land. Before, before long, there's a new headquarters for the early church in Antioch. And it says, and it was there that the disciples were first called Christians. I made this point to some guys last night. They didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians because of what they were doing. Laying down their lives, not fearing death. Here, here now here are men that act like Christ. So I don't like calling myself a Christian. I'll wait till that day somebody looks at me and says, okay, there's a man who laid down his life for Christ or lived his life for Christ. But pretty soon God's provided them a center headquarters outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is old news. It spreads to the coastline. It goes up the coastline. Caesarea, major imperial port. Peter's in Caesarea converting Peter. It goes to the Gentiles. It goes across the pond. It goes to Rome. It's game over for the established order. And while all of this is going on, uh, little Stephen goes up to his Greek-speaking synagogues around Antioch. He starts preaching Christ. And they can't argue with him. And what does he do? Like They get so fed up that they can't out-argue him that they round everybody up from every synagogue in the Gentile world and bring him back down to Jerusalem to prove to the Jerusalem old guard how loyal they are to the old system. And do you remember the charges that they brought against Stephen? I want you to think in terms of that great cathedral or that great pyramid or the great halls and institutions of power. What were the charges they brought against Stephen? He speaks against this place. Think about it. The, the first charge brought against Stephen was that he spoke against this temple. Who dares speak against this place? This is the foundation of our everything we stand for. This is Hebrew civilization. And Stephen just had the audacity to repeat what Christ had said. You know, look, in a generation, this thing's gonna, gonna, not even going to be a nice stack of blocks. It's going to be knocked down, not one block upon another. How dare you say this about our building? And he speaks against the law of Moses. Well, that always comes second, by the way. When somebody wants to kick you out of the church, they don't bring up the laws you've actually infracted. They don't bring up the things you've actually said. They, oh, he's against church government. You're against authority, aren't you? There's always this amorphous thing that you're opposing. So Stephen does this, and you look at that. And so you can see it in Egypt, you can see it in Acts, you can see it in other places. But in each case, it's the triumph of true progress by the sacrificial love of individuals, service to one another, standing up against a system of power that is symbolized by a great place and a council of powerful leaders. Now, I could probably condense it more than that, but I think that gets where I'm wanting to go. When we can bring ourselves to admit, when we look at these great monuments of Western civilization and say, you know what? No, no, that is not progress. That's not progress. I'm not saying there wasn't progress involved in bringing that to pass. I'm saying that thing is not the progress. Okay. When we, when we get to the point we can admit that, then we'll also have to ask ourselves... 
is it even really a symbol of Western civilization? And then we'll also have to admit, no, it's not. What it is is a symbol of Western power. From the perspective of biblical progress, it is little more than a stack of blocks, nicely arranged, nicely carved maybe, has some nice artwork and stained glass windows in it. Suzanne is going to kill me for giving this talk, by the way. Nicely arranged, colorful glass, but it's not the civilization. It's not even the symbol of the civilization. The symbol of it is the guy down there on the ground pounding out the stones. For no credit, hardly any money, who's dedicated his life to learning one skill that he repeats over and over until he dies, and his name is never recorded in the history books. He scraped by, probably raised a wife and children on a menial salary. Okay, that guy who followed the system of ethics and gave himself for something bigger than himself, there's the symbol of Western civilization. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> she always comes around. Sometimes it's, it's with a hammer, but she comes around. So my point, my contention would be that it's only where there has been service to your fellow man, and I would say fellow man in general, certainly to covenant man, to your covenant men and women, but to, to mankind in general. And that, that gets lost in our circles, especially in the arguments I had over slavery. It always devolved down to that point. Why should we help these people who are defiant pagans living off welfare and abuse their children, etc., etc., whatever the evils may be? They're not even believers. We're called to help the brethren. But Paul calls us even to, to love those that are without the church in such a way that there's no enmity there. So my point would be, where there has been true service in humanity, in history, that's where you see the progress. Where you see sacrificial love in action, there has been progress. And I don't care what kind of buildings have been built. Because as I keep, I keep coming back to this movie that I can't get out of my head now, it's one line from the movie, uh, Thor Ragnarok, Asgard is not a place, it's a people. That is conscious Christian theology. And for too long we've, we've taught the church is a place. And we're like those Hebrew elders and, and rabbis in accusing Stephen, how dare you speak against our place? In reality, the, the people, Stephen and all the people on his side were saying, no, it's not a place. The temple is not a place. It is a people. So, that's the, the basis of it. Now, tying back into the, what I originally said, it's when those things get reversed that we, we, create, we can create great facades of civilization. We can create the, the, the Empire State Building or whatever, the greatest buildings in history. That's way down the list. Now, what's the big one in Dubai, the, the Caliph, Caliph Tower or whatever it's called, 2,700 feet tall? This is an amazing building. We can build all kinds of monuments all day, every day, and it's not progress. But we can create the facade of progress 
and, and um, advance and dominion. There's a whole other talk that has to be had over that aspect of it. What is dominion now? And it really becomes a trap. Like all the trappings of Western civilization, they are just that. They become a trap to us. Because we start relying on the means by which we got those things, which is more often than not taxation, extortion, power, and many other things like that, that then go into building the great facades for the great celebrity names and whatnot. The great men, so-called great men of, of history. And those are the things that goes wrong. And that is exactly what is being talked about in that epistle of Jude. Those guys that were opposing Stephen, that were saying, don't dare speak against our place, but then they immediately pivoted and say, no, this is about the law of Moses. What Jude is trying to tell the people, there are going to be people coming right in among you that talk gospel, that talk Moses, that talk Bible, and yet they are blasphemous to the core because they're walking in the way of Cain, and that's exactly what those guys were doing. What is the way of Cain? Cain sees his brother have something he doesn't. And instead of improving himself or repenting to get it, finding God's blessings through the channels God provides, he kills the guy that's better than him to even the tables. But then the problem is you can't ever escape your conscience. And then he, then he has the audacity to complain to God that his punishment of being banished is more than he can bear. Well, maybe you should have thought about that before you murdered your brother. So what does Cain do? In his anxiety and his fear of, being, of having retribution upon him constantly, uh, mainly fear, but certainly that breeds anxiety and all kinds of other things, what does he do? He goes and he builds a civilization. The first thing he does is build a city. He builds a city. He names it after his own progeny, Enoch, the first Enoch, not the good Enoch. And what is a city? In, in ancient times, a city meant a walled city. It was there for your protection. It was also there as a center for conquest of neighboring areas. So what did Cain do? Cain builds the first, basically, center of empire. It's a wall. It's, nobody has seen anything like this. They're in a garden, for, for crying out loud. They're living in, uh, they probably lived in small stone houses or whatever. They didn't build these great facades. But what did Cain do? He took his lust to rule, his inner uh, desire that God put in each one of us to, to go and exercise dominion, and he took that in his own perverted psychology was to protect himself and to make himself great. And he goes and he builds great facades and great walls. And then he's, his progeny does the same thing. That's why there are several reasons Genesis lists this in Genesis 4, I believe. But one of them is to show us how out of that drive to, for self-exaltation comes this increase of technology. So Cain's sons, they become domesticators of animals, they, come, they become creators of entertainment and the arts, they become creators of metallurgy, and all of those things have good uses, but also have uses for conquest and Epicureanism as well. And we find out that Cain's line is not so great because when you get to Lamech, he says, well, 
if Kane's going to be avenged, so I'll be avenged even more, and he kills a guy just for sport. And then he starts taking multiple wives to himself. Well, if, if Kane's going to make his own progeny and name a city after himself, well, I'm going to do double that. I'm going to make extra wives and make as many babies as I can. There's the origins of the, what's called patriarchalism in many circles, by the way. It is the way of Cain. Uh, and there are some elements in that that will defend polygamy still today, by the way. Different discussion. So what's going on with the way of Cain? It is what happens to the dominion impulse that God gave us when God's grace is lifted, lifted from us and we're left with our own fallen nature. Basically everything you see in human history, because Cain's line leads to the flood, but then after the flood... Uh, Canaan takes over, and it's the exact same thing played out again. There's your cycles in history, right? And it turns into Babel. What is Babel? It's the tower with the great walls in the center of conquest. Only this time, the guy is even more evil than the last guy. He's even worse than Lamech. This is Nimrod we're talking about here. This guy's ruthless. And so this repeats all through history until by the time you get to these Hebrews in 1 Samuel 8, what do they say? You know, we're, we're kind of giving up on this whole following Yahweh deal. We'd kind of like to have a king like those guys because, you know what? Look at the greatness they have. Look at the power those Philistines have. Look at the power those Egyptians still have. Here we are toiling away with this crazy law God gave us with sacrificing lambs and going up to Jerusalem three times a year and waving grain in the air. We look like a bunch of clowns in the face of the rest of the world. We want national greatness. Make Israel great again. Make, <laughs> Make Israel great again. And that's exactly what they do. So they, you know, the whole story with Samuel, and they bring in the king, and comes Saul, and he's a disaster. But he turns the nation into a tyranny. Just, you want a king like the other nations? Here you go. And they got like the other nations. High taxation, confiscation for warfare, confiscation for community service, etc., etc., etc. Goes on forever. Oh, and by the way, God says, when this all this happens, I'm not going to listen to your prayers anymore and your cries for mercy. So you got that to look forward to. Oh, I've got several pages left, but if you want me to finish, I will, because it is good stuff. It's good because it didn't come from me. I stole everything I got from people before me. So, so when you get to the Reformation, what do we remember as the great legacy of the Reformation? It's the doctrine of, ref of uh, justification by faith alone, right? And we got the solas. And in the Reformed circles, they can't stop talking about the five solas. And if it were up to them, they would think that's the only thing that ever happened out of the Reformation was the five solas. But the thing that gets left out, and I think it may be even bigger. I'm going to get myself in real deep hot water with the churchians saying that I think it may be even bigger than the doctrine of justification by faith alone that came out of the Reformation was the simple busting of the ecclesiastical power. Come on. They cracked it. And there was a lot going on at this time that doesn't get talked about. Advances in technology to improve mining, advances in the monetary system, advances in the banking and finance system. Suddenly you have a rise of a middle class of people who have day jobs, and, and suddenly you have a, 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 a this crazy pope who wants to build this giant facade in Rome and he starts the indulgences system. Suddenly you have a viable middle class system of economics for average people uh, that's working and producing income and producing 
levels uh, of what would they call it elevated life um, well, like standards of living for people and they're looking back at this church that's hammering tighter and tighter on you have to pay us to get your relatives out of purgatory and everybody knows where the money's going everybody knows while Texel's going from town to town raising all this money it's to pay off the Pope to build this big old cathedral and Joe Blow in in Munich or wherever in Germany at the time is like, why am I sending money off to the Pope? And the person who really breaks the system more than anybody and doesn't get as much credit as he should was um, Frederick the Wise, who is the protector of Luther. He's the guy that uses his own money to found the University of Wittenberg as the world's first free university, free in the sense that it was free from the control of the Pope. So today we would simply call it a secular university, except it wasn't. It was a Christian university. And, and he brought Luther there. And he brought Melanchthon there. And, and now the Pope is really going crazy because he wants Frederick on his side because he needs the income from those lands, from that government. But Frederick's like, you know, but the Pope also doesn't want a single university in Europe outside of his control of his bishops and his doctrine. So this cat and mouse game gets played between Frederick and the Pope, and Frederick's like, you know what? You push too hard on the money, we're just gonna keep the school and keep the money too. And so the Pope said, all right, all right, you keep your school for now, just send us the money because we need to finish this cathedral. So anyway, a little politics going on there. There was a lot more to the story, but the rise of the merchant class and the burger class created an entire social revolution that's rarely talked about in our churches certainly Reformation circles, so that when Luther comes along and stands up to the Pope, Frederick immediately goes, ah, there's my guy. And he, that's why he was the guy that protected Luther. And this creates a doctrinal revolution where people start scratching their heads saying, why are we sending all this money to the Pope? And Luther stands up and says, you know what, the whole doctrine of indulgences is hooey to begin with. And now the Pope is really in a tight spot. So you have these advancements going on, and you have a Luther's willing to, to stand up before the Council of Worms, and he had no idea he was going to be rescued. As far as he knew, his head was coming off. And he was willing to stand up and say what he said, busting the ecclesiastical power into the teeth of power and said it and did exactly what we're talking about here. Calvin comes along on top of that, and he takes he looks at this entire social revolution, and he, and he teaches what the Bible teaches. You know what? There's no difference in the holiness of the work of the plowboy than there is of the priest. And in fact, everybody who's working, I don't care if you're a homemaker, or if you're a, a stonemason, or if you're pumping water out of the mines, doesn't matter what you're doing. Your calling is a sacred gift given to you by God. Are you trying to pull the plug on me? Or no, no, you're good. All right, just checking. Your calling is a sacred gift given to you by God, and it is every bit, if not more, part of the kingdom of God as what the Pope and his priests are doing. And that doctrine, more than anything, as far as Christian doctrines go, changed the Western world and busted the ecclesiastical power. Now... As I said, the trappings of institutional power are just that, and we need to be honest. 
when we, when we stand up and we praise the reformers for what they did, we also recognize they didn't do it all the way because most of them turned right around and created the very same, same types of institutions of power that they had just broken free from. I can say we could probably forgive them for doing that, but what, what I have to add is that we don't have an excuse for doing that. So, when we look back on these things, we can't measure progress by the power of the institutions or the power of the individuals or the money that's behind them or any of these things. And there are far too many people in our circles that do that. In fact, there are far too many people in our circles who just want to go back to the way Luther and Calvin did it or Knox or some other form of the Westminster Standards or whatever. If we can just get back to the way it was in the 17th century, it would be fine. That's not progress. That's not progress. You can't return to a bygone era with these kind of blinders on to the vital mistakes that they made. We don't go back there just to blame them and cast them down. And I'll, I will say that even for all the hammering that we gave John Knox, we wouldn't even do it to him totally. But we do stand without excuse ourselves, many times not even realizing that the forms of everything they did back in those days, say the Westminster Standards days, half of it was pagan. I mean, now somebody's really going to get mad now because I said the Westminster Standards are half pagan, but they're so filled with, the philosophy behind them is filled with Aristotle, Aristotelian categories, some Plato, uh, the forms throughout the history of clerical dress. All these things were just taking things from some element in time that everyone at the time thought was relevant to that time. You know where the whole of priestly garb comes from? It comes from the 4th and 5th centuries. When somebody said, you know what, we think the priests need to be in uniform so that everybody knows who the priest is. And they said, well, okay, what uniform do we get? Do we want a Roman soldier uniform? No, of course not. We need this uniform? Oh, no. Let's just adopt the standard business attire for the era. And what the, all the gowns and all that kind of stuff evolved out of was somebody saying, let's wear the same thing all the businessmen wear from that era. But then the, the church made it dogma, and so now we've got guys wearing 4th and 5th century relevant business attire. And, of course, there's all kinds of accoutrements added onto it nowadays. There's always somebody trying to do this. Let's go back and read the gist of venom by the, the 17th century uh, divines, and then we'll get our ecclesiology right. And I'm like, no, you will get it absolutely wrong. You're, you're trying to retread old worn out tires with old worn out tread. It doesn't work. And likewise, we've got far too many people in our own circles even who measure progress by power. It doesn't matter if you're talking about a political party or a popular movement of some sort or trends or authorities such as the thin blue line or the thick green line of the military. In each case, the thing underlying that that is being sought after is satanic because it's power. It is not sacrifice through love. It is, at the very least, the way of Cain all over again. There's so much more to say. But to return to the convenient example I brought up, at the risk of giving it far too much attention than I want to, 
Notre Dame is not a symbol of Western civilization. It may be in some small way, but it's not because of its size or its scope or its appearance or its art or its majesty or any of those things. It's a symbol because of the sacrifice that people put in to make it happen. And that appears in donors who gave money for it. And I didn't get to research entirely how it was funded, but something tells me there was some kingly and priestly extortion behind all of it. But there were also donors who freely gave to see that thing built over 25 years. There are people who gave their lives to work and build it and their knowledge. There were people who kept the books. In the 13th or 14th century, was it when double-entry bookkeeping was, was invented? That's progress because it serves people. It serves people in important ways, and it's selfless. It's not seeking glory or fame. It's just meeting a need. It's giving your own time and resources to figure out a way to meet somebody else's need and improve things. And as I said, slaving away for no uh, credit whatsoever. In all of these things, you have to have a covenantal view of progress. There has to be that predictive agent above the top of it. Of course, that's God Almighty. No one else can fill that role. We could get into the Trinity and whatnot. You've got to have that representative, legitimate authority in history. Covenant-keeping people that are representing the God who called them to do this, which is to sacrifice themselves, to fill up the measure of Christ's sufferings as we live. That starts in the that starts with yourself. Starts in the home, and the truth the truth is, at this point in history, there may be a lot of people whose calling in dominion and reconstruction doesn't get past the walls of their own home, because there's so much to do there, and so much we failed at collectively and individually. You got to have a standard of evaluation. We all know that's God's law. You've got to have a cultural cause and effect relationship between keeping God's law and blessing over a long period of time and disobedience to uh, a punishment. We do see that. That's why uh, uh, Jude refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. These guys creeping in, they're going in the way of Cain, he says. They are reserved just like the angels for Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? These are references to negative sanctions in history when people rebelled against God. I don't expect fire to fall out of heaven. But when you look at Romans 1, Paul certainly has in mind the rampant immorality. And our modern preachers, bless their little hearts, can't get past the fact that Romans 1 talks about homosexuality. Those that do such things are worthy of death. We must not tolerate. We must stand against the LGBT agenda. Well, I don't. I don't agree with it either. I don't. I, I think we should oppose it also. But I think we should read the rest of the list of things he says in there, which includes envy and covetousness, and all those things that take society as a whole down the tube. Because those are the opposite of the service and love. And quite frankly, I have met some homosexuals that do society more service in giving and love than many Christians I've met or many professing Christians. So I hate to say that, but it's true. I'm not saying they're saved by any means. That's between them and God. whole different subject. But the point is, when it comes to how they act in society and how they treat other people, put Christians to shame in many cases. When you deny these things, you get the five alternatives of them in the form, 
depends on where you're at in history and how it's working out. In, in the past, it was the church tyranny. Today, it's the state tyranny. When you deny the sovereignty of God in covenantal progress, the state steps in to be the determining agent. So it becomes the predestiner of society. The state starts telling you, this is what we're going to accomplish, and it starts trying to direct you toward those goals. Of course, it can't do it because it's not omnipotent. It can't determine what prices are going to be six months from now. It tries to allocate resources based on that, but it can't do it. Again, long talk. It tries to determine who the representative and whose legitimacy exists in society. And so the state puts up figures for you. It may be in, in terms of propaganda, uh, fictional characters. It may be in movies, but it may also be a dictator or some way they capture your imagination and your emotions in order to steer people toward what they want to be considered legitimate. They make their own laws. They make their own sanctions. They create their own fiat money so that they can direct money to people who fail but support their agenda and uh, extract money from people who are obedient to God. And uh, it, it tied into all this is that inquisitorial just, justice system, or injustice system is what it should be called, uh, in which one of, the, one of the greatest things we haven't put a lot of time on is the doctrine of sovereign immunity. And that's why police rarely ever get in trouble for what they do. And the people even worse than, than them on that score are the prosecutors. Prosecutors rarely ever are held accountable for any wrongdoing they do. Certainly not on a large scale. So that they can twist rules and pressure people and cheat and lie and all kinds of stuff. They can suppress evidence. They oftentimes get away with it. Um, but if you try to do that, boy, you're paying extra jail time. They can say the most wild things that are incorrectly wrong that could be an outright lie, and in many cases are. Police lie on the stands all the time. They are allowed to do so because they have particular immunities in the justice system such that when they do wrong, they're not held accountable. When police departments are held wrong, the police department has an insurance policy that pays out whatever the fines are to the person they wrong. So they're, they're completely unaccountable except to the whatever the premiums may be on those insurance policies. So, so that you have selective immunity when it comes to sanctions in society. When man takes over, that's when corruption steps in because they start setting the terms of who gets sanctioned and when and how. And of course, you have to deny the fifth point of the covenant, which is compound growth over time. And this is something, again, needs its whole talk. When you deny compound growth on God's terms what you end up having to do is kill God's people and that's been you see that with Stephen you see that all through but what happened when they killed Stephen they what happens is the 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 autonomous imposer of authority in society wants to say I'm the one who determines who gets to inherit the progress and who doesn't and so they set up they they slant the rules they do the injustice they do whatever it takes to make that person inherit. A good example is, is, is Nadab, or not Nadab and Abihu, but uh, uh, Naboth's vineyard, where Ahab tries to steal his vineyard and all that. But Stephen's a good example again. What did they try to do? No, Stephen, you're not the faithful one. You will not inherit God's promises. We will kill you and take you off the scene. But you can't kill God's people. 
because it's God's doing. It's God's work. So what happens when they stone Stephen to death? The church scatters everywhere temporarily in fear, but then they realize, wait a minute, this is God's providence, and they start preaching in all the cities. Revival takes place like never before, and God's people increase so that the very inheritance that the state and the uh, corrupt authorities were trying to stamp out doubles, triples, multiplies by a hundred in size and scope. So now what are they going to do? That is what happens when we stand firm and faithful and don't bend. I want to read a couple of quotations to close this out. Uh, as I was reading through some of Norse material, I think this is, uh, this is Tools of Dominion, I think. And he says, We must not promote growth for its own sake. Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell, as Edward Abbey once remarked. We're not to pursue the fruits of Christian faith. Hear that? What does Christ say to us? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, then all these things will be added unto you. What I've been saying all this long is people are seeking power and then trying to call that the kingdom of God as, as they build their facades. Here, North is following Jesus and saying just the opposite. Don't pursue the fruits of the faith. Don't pursue the fruit. Pursue the roots of it. We are to conform ourselves and our institutions to the requirements of biblical law. The result will be long-term growth. Our obligation is to seek first the kingdom of God. All these other things will be added. But keep in mind, they will be added, not subtracted. They're not kept as they are. It's not pre-mill, it's not post-mill, it's not evolution, it's not Hinduism, it's not Maya, it's not illusion. It is compound growth over time to God's faithful covenant people in history. And this is, what, this is what I'll close with. Gary says, the process of differentiation is not constant over time. It ebbs and flows. Its general direction is toward epistemological and ethical self-consciousness. I promise not to use too big a words here today, but those squeaked in. But Christians are not always faithful any more than the Hebrews were in the days of the judges. The early church defeated Rome. Listen, this is my message here. The early church defeated Rome, and then the secular remnants of Rome compromised the church. The Reformation launched a new era of cultural growth. The Counter-Reformation struck back, and the secularism of the Renaissance swallowed up both for a time. Okay, That's not cyclical history. That is linear history. It is progress. But it's progress according to God's law and God's sanctions. And so our challenge here today is to look at all these things. Now, the challenge is several fold. Don't be deceived by the great walls and facades and buildings of so-called civilization. That's not where the magic's at. The magic is in the simple people who dedicate their lives to be faithful and let the consequences come in God's providence. You may experience those short-term, and I hope you will, and you probably will in some. But you're going to experience suffering and pushback and difficulty as well. And you're going to go through some troughs in humanity. And, and your job is to know the God who is saving you, not just in it, but through it. And that you are called to be a witness for him as you go through. And that means not moaning, not complaining, not becoming bitter. One of the great 
besetting sins of the libertarian movement is it's always bitter and complaining. I love John Whitehead's writings, but all he does is complain. You read one of his books, and it's like, the cops did this, and the cops did that, and the Supreme Court ruled this down, and this down, and that's the end of the book. And I'm like, hey, what do we do? What do we do? That's what we need to know. So we got to have God's law there to give us a path to keep walking so that even when things get bad, we know what the path is. And when things are good, we know why they're good. And then either one, we're thanking God for the times when his word spreads throughout the land and all these disciples come and things are great and it creates growing pains and those are great problems. We thank him for that. We also thank him when we're Paul and Silas in uh, being whipped in prison and we come out praising the Lord, counting ourselves worthy that we got whipped. We need to have a, a mentality of faithfulness all the time. And it is that element more than any single thing that will define biblical progress. Because progress is not the outward things. It's the progress of God's people in history. And that's defined by God and His work. Not by our works. So I would challenge you all with that today and hope I haven't taken too much of your time. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Thank you. Hey. Give Joel McDermott some love for that forbidden flame. He just received a banned book here today. A banned book. In the era where there's no light in the city, he received a banned book right here from this makeshift podium right here. Thank you, Brother Joel McDermott. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.